morning. How's everyone doing today? All right. Well, we'll open up your Bibles to the book of Exodus, please. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 7 and chapter 8. And uh, so as we get there, I thought we would start today by just playing a game. And the game is called Real or AI, Artificial Intelligence. So I'm going to show you a picture, and you're going to figure out if the picture is real or was it artificially created by AI. All right, so you can go on the Internet and pull down ChatGPT and some programs like that. Type in what you want it to do, and it will create an image. So, for example, this image was created by AI. I said the instructions were something along of a title slide for a game called Real or AI, and this is what it came up with. So that's fake. We'll just start with that one. All right, so let's go to our first one, sir. Here's your picture. Is this a real picture, or was this picture created by AI? Give you a second to look at it. All right, if you think it's real, say yay. If you think it's AI, say yay. If you just said A, you are correct. Notice the lanyard's all off and the buckles are not exactly right. All right, let's go to the next picture. All right, is this real or is this AI? If you think it's real, say yay. If you think it's AI, say yay. Oh, oh not quite as sure now, are we? <laughs> We're not quite sure. All right, Nick, what, which, which is it? It's real. That's a real picture. Good job. If you said real. Let's go to our next one. We'll just do a couple more. Real or AI? If you think it's AI, say yay. Oh, if you think it's real, say yay. Uh, what is it, Nick? It is actually AI. Didn't quite get the hands right. The arms a little long. The hands are not quite right. All right, let's, go one, let's do one more. Let's do one more. Real or AI? If you think it's real, say yay. If you think it's AI, say yay. All right, you're right. It is AI. How do we know? Look at her hand. Arms not quite right, right? It's a little too long. Fingers aren't quite right. Y'all, we are within very short period of time before the technology is going to be where you cannot tell the difference between what's been generated by AI and what is an actual real video or photograph. Uh, and there's all kind of things. So today we're going to talk about counterfeits uh, because we live in a world where there are, where God is real, where God has his word and that he has uh, things that he wants us to hold to and there's a counterfeit version of that and we have to have the eyes to see and the ability to discern what is real and what is not real. What is the truth and what is the lie? How do we tell the difference? That's what we're going to focus on today. So before we jump into God's word, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. And Lord, in your infinite wisdom, you have given us your word, the word of God, that is true in all its parts. It is without error, any mixture of error. And Lord, we can take and put our salvation, our, our future, our eternal life in that word. And we can take it and apply it to our life because it is true. And Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, help us to understand that more today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 8. Now this is taking place after Moses has gone to Egypt. Do you remember he was out in the wilderness and now he's made his way back to Egypt. Uh, he's gone to the Pharaoh. Pharaoh has doubled the workload. You know, he's not giving the people straw. And so we had that, we had that conversation last week. Now 
He goes back to Pharaoh and is now going to say, let my people go. And we're going to begin the, the plagues and all of that begins to happen in, in what we're going to start with today. And so, the first thing we're going to start with is in Exodus chapter 7, verse 8, is the miracle of the staff to a snake. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff, cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And so we've, he's told us this, this is, this is review, right? He's told you multiple times, this is what's going to happen, this is what you're going to do. And now they're there. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. And Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. In the next five chapters that we're going to see, this is the, what we call the plagues, right? The plagues of Egypt. In these next five chapters, there's some big themes that I just want to highlight. First is the obedience of Moses and Aaron. Aaron and Moses, they're not asking questions. They're not saying, you know, what about this? They're just doing what they're supposed to do. They're being obedient. We see that. We see uh, that um, there's the counterfeit miracles of Satan and his servants. There's all these counterfeits. The superior power of God and his staff. The staff's going to be used multiple times that we're going to look at uh, in, the, in the next five chapters. The superior power of God and these things and the perpetual hardening of Pharaoh's heart and we're gonna look at that a little bit today what's it mean when it says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and we see it again and again and again throughout these chapters so what we see in verse 10 is a Moses that has changed so Moses and Aaron they go and they did just as the Lord commanded they don't argue they don't give excuses they just do what God commanded I just want to highlight this real quick because it's easy to miss is that Moses as a leader has grown he's grown in his walk with the Lord he's grown in his faith these God's moved him he's gone from uh, uh, murdering a murderer and he's escaping and running out into Midian and all these things God comes to him in the burning bush uh, and then there's this excuses and, and so then we see him here as he's and then again the people come at him because uh, he they blame him for the bricks and all of that and so but now we see that he and Aaron are doing just as they were commanded and we see this pattern follow through the rest of the next five chapters is they do just what they're supposed to do then the Pharaoh says prove yourselves by working a miracle and so let's talk about that for a second so does God give miracles today to prove himself right so uh, does God not perform God so what we see in Scripture and and why we have scripture is that God does not just perform random acts of omnipotence but instead displays his power in order to confirm the truth of his word and so he's like here's the word and I'm going and here's what I want you to say to them and here's what's going to happen and all these things and then he does miracles to prove that to show that and so Pharaoh is asking for a miracle as proof that Moses and Aaron are telling the truth that they are actually speaking the word of God and we would say okay well that's that's okay that seems legit that Pharaoh would say how do I know that you are who you say that you are religious leaders in Jesus's day did the same thing and so we so we have to kind of get to a point where am I asking for proof that God's word is true or am I asking because I want to have some type of an excuse not to follow it the religious leaders in Jesus day did the same thing Matthew 12 then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying teacher 
we wish to see a sign from you. Did they really want to see a sign from him? Because, I mean, if you could go back and look at the background and the context, is that he'd already done some signs, and he'd already done some things. So, we want to see some signs from you. The teacher will see, and he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Remember the story of Jonah? Jonah's the prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, God tells him to go to Nineveh. He, re, he goes in the opposite directions to Tarshish. Uh, and, in the, and as he's sailing, a great storm comes up and, and he ends up being tossed overboard. Uh, and the great giant fish swallows him up. And for three days, he's in the giant fish's belly for three days. And then afterwards, it regurgitates him up onto the shore. But in the middle of that, he has this repentance that takes place in his heart and then he goes on to preach uh, five words to the city of Nineveh and there's this great repentance of sackcloth and ashes all right so Jesus says if you want to see a sign here's the sign it's going to be like the sign of Jonah the son of man it goes on to say for the son of man will be three days in three nights in the heart of the earth and so Jesus is going to die he's gonna be crucified he's going to die he's gonna be buried and three days later he will be resurrected again that's that's the proof that Jesus is who he says he is that's the proof that God's word is true is the resurrection and then he go then Jesus goes on to say the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at the preaching again five words of Jonah and behold something greater than Jonah is here that's Jesus Jesus is teaching it's far greater than the preaching of Jonah. The queen of the south will rise up at judgment of this generation to condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So this is uh, the queen of the south came and, and listened to what uh, Solomon had to say because he was known to be the wisest man on the earth. And she again will rise up. So what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying is that there is evidence of who Jesus is. And there's evidence that the Bible is true. And there's evidence of all of these things. The re and he points specifically to the resurrection. So why doesn't God just do all these miracles today to show you or to show me or show the, the skeptic that he is who he says he is? He's already done it. We have the scriptures. We have the Bible and it is true. That's the evidence is the scriptures. The ultimate sign to prove that God's word is true is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead which shall not be repeated he's not going to do that again the resurrection is the last miracle we need to confirm that the gospel truth that Jesus died to save sinners so let's go on so so the Pharaoh's warning proof he's warning evidence do we have the right to ask for that same evidence we have it we have the evidence verse 11 then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and sorcerers and they the magicians of east of Egypt also did the same by their secret arts for each man cast down his staff and they became serpents but Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs still Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said there's different there's really two different ways to interpret what's going on here the first way is what we call a naturalistic approach Look, here's what happened. Here's how we explain this whole staff thing, right? So uh, uh, there was this, you, you could take a cobra, right, and you could wrap it around a stick, and you could thump it on the head, or you could squeeze the back of its neck, and it would get stiff. And you could hold it out like this, 
ta-da, a staff. And then he takes it, unwind. you can just go to YouTube and watch this. They'll, un they'll undo it, they'll throw the snake down, give a little shake on its tail, and eventually it'll pop back up. Is that what's happening? That's a naturalistic approach of saying that this is what happened in this scene. Later, we're going to see that the Nile is said to turn to blood. Is that real blood, or is it algae that has floated in from a flood upstream, and now that algae just appears to be blood, wasn't really blood, just looked like blood? That's your first way to interpret a passage, is a naturalistic explanation of what's going on. The second way of interpreting it is the miraculous way. Right, to say that the, the snake, or the staff, became a snake. And the snake then became a staff. That the Nile, which we're going to look at in just a second, was water, and it actually became blood. Not something that looked like blood, but blood. And so, which is it? There's no indication in the scriptures that it's anything other than the miraculous. Right, this was a miracle that took place. It's not misdirection. It's not sleight of hand. It's not trickery or fooling the audience. None of us, and even then, would be fooled if some guy took a stick and wrapped the snake around it and then said, ta-da, it's a staff. Like, no, it's not. You just, took a, you just took the snake and wrapped it around it. Right? It's, that's not what's going on. So, the snake was a symbol of the Egyptian power. And when Moses threw down the staff and he picked it back up again, there was a very obvious meaning that the Hebrew God was challenging the Egyptian God. Remember, uh, the Pharaoh would have been sitting there with this headdress on. That was, the, that was the cobra's head, right? It would have been like, you could see it in all of the, you could just go look. It's, and they usually will have a cobra little thing right here on their forehead. It was very obvious, that when Moses goes in and he goes, here's the snake, the serpent, and, he, and he's able to manipulate it, and he's able to, to control it, what he's saying. It's very, let me give you an name, it's very, very similar to someone going into the Oval Office of the United States. What's on the, the big carpet that's, that's, in the, that's in the Oval Office? It's a big eagle, right? And then you would have gone look around and there'd be flags. And on top of the flag, there'd be a little eagle sitting on the top. Right? Very, so, so you have this guy that goes into the Oval Office. And he takes something and he turns it into an eagle. Right? Then he takes the eagle and he wrings its neck. And he goes whack, like that. Right? Kills the eagle. What, is, what do you think he's trying to portray there? What do you think he's trying to symbolize and say there? Right? It's very obvious. This is exactly what's happening here. He's coming in. He's doing the cobra. He's, he's uh, controlling it. He's making it do all these different things. He's saying that the Hebrew God is more powerful than the Egyptian God. So, 2 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan and all power and false signs and wonders, with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. The text of the Old Testament indicates that this is a real miracle. It was real, exactly like what it says. And then there will come a day in which there will also be other false signs and wonders, counterfeits, a true and a counterfeit. The evil one, 
does have power. Satan does have power. And whenever we say, well, it was just algebra or it's just this, and we downplay it, we rob it of the understanding that there's actual power for the counterfeit. Right? If you minimize the truth of what they're doing, it takes that power away. Which means that when Satan offers a counterfeit to you, it's not really that big of a deal. It's not really that important. It's not really even that big of an attraction because it's not even really real. That's not true. When Satan offers a counterfeit to us and we have to make the decision between the truth and the counterfeit, both have power. But ultimately, which one is best? Which one has the, who is the most powerful? What is the ultimate best thing for my life is to choose the truth of the, of the Bible or the counterfeit that's being offered by Satan? How do I know? And then which one is the best? In 2 Thessalonians, there's, there's going to come a time where there is these false signs and wonders. And so there's two powers going head to head, and both show their miracle, and they are both miracles. And if you have, if you have already refused, as the passage in Thessalonians says, refuse to love the truth then the, when the counterfeit is given you would go you are going to go with what your heart really wants that's your sin so you've got a counterfeit and you've got the truth and our hearts always desire to rebel and go against God and so we tend to run after the counterfeit even though even though the Bible clearly says the real thing is better is more powerful at the end is the best there's always these powers going to head to head. God never said that he had given Moses a sign of his authority as a prophet that could not be duplicated. He doesn't say that. But the means that they came about the same end was by their secret arts. So these magicians came up with it with their secret arts. God works through Moses and Aaron. So Satan is not capable of creating anything new. Go and look in the scriptures and see what Satan does. Satan always takes something that is good and creates a counterfeit. Let me give you two examples. Christ came to save the world from sin, right? The Antichrist will come to tell lies and to keep people from salvation. There's always a Christ and an Antichrist. The, uh, in sex, right, just use that as an example, which is one that this flooded through our culture, right? If you follow sex within the bounds of God's plan with marriage, then that is good. If you take it and take it outside of marriage, it becomes perverted and corrupt. And so are both of those examples powerful? Absolutely. They're very powerful temptations. They're very powerful things that we tend to pursue. But one is real and one is a counterfeit. You have to know the difference. So then the Lord's staff swallows up the magician's staff. And with this event, the duel has officially begun. It's God and Satan. Going at it, right? Who's going to win? Who's the most powerful? And the one who truly deserves to be praised and served versus the false God who only offers slavery and death. And so at this display of force, Pharaoh's heart is hardened, right? God told him it was going to be hardened, and now here it is. It's being hardened. So here's our, here, let me ask you this. Is it fair? Is it fair for God to intentionally harden a man's heart and then to judge him when he can't change his heart. Is that fair? Is that what's going on here in this passage? So, 
Scripture is clear that God does not make man to sin. He does not make us sin. Every man's heart is in God's hand, and it is God that restrains him from sin, not forces him into it. However, when a person resists, and they resist, and they resist long enough, the worst thing that could happen, listen to me, the worst thing that could happen in a person's life is if God just lets them go, right? So he's holding them back. That's what, how I define grace, is God is holding us back from sin. And it's within our heart's desire to pull and pull and push and resist. And we're like, we, we just resist and we pull and we pull. And eventually, he lets us go. Drew, where are you getting that? Let's look at Romans chapter 1. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. That's the counterfeit. And they worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. We have a Labradoodle puppy. She's two years old. You put her on a leash, and we take her outside to go to the bathroom. The first thing that she does is, is get to the very end of that leash as fast as she can and pulls, and pulls, and pulls. And she's like wanting to go everywhere. She's pulling, she's pulling, she's pulling, she's pulling, she's pulling. And that's all she thinks about is she's pulling, she's pulling, she's pulling, she's pulling. That's what God does with us. It's our heart's desire to run away and go like, oh, look at this. Oh, look at this. Oh, this looks good. Oh, what about this? Oh, this looks good. Oh, I'm going to do this. And God's like, no, that's not good for you. You don't need to be doing that. Whoa. And he pulls us back. And then eventually, if it's our heart's desire that all we want to do is to pull away from God and like, God, let me go. I, I want to do my thing. I don't want to do what you want to do. I, I want to do me. I want to do me. I want to be. And eventually, he lets us go. He lets the leash go. And off we go, go into what our heart's desire ultimately, truly wants. Man, at his core level, his heart is wicked and corrupt and only desires to do evil. And therefore, God in his mercy and grace restrains them. And it's the choice we make to run away from God is to harden our heart. This, this idea of us rebelling and running away is, is a reference to our hardening our hearts. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? Why should you do that? Why run away? Why rebel? So when it says that God hardened their hearts, it means that in his omnipotence, he kept Pharaoh's heart in the hardened state. He couldn't change his mind. All grace was removed and his heart was able to fully pursue what he wanted he wanted people to worship him. He wanted to be in control. He wanted, he wanted ultimate power. That's what he wanted. That's what his heart desired. And, his, and when it says he hardened his heart or God hardened his heart, it's like God let go of the leash. He let him go. If you have a loved one who is rebelling and not following the Lord, your prayer could be something like, Lord, I pray for grace. Lord, I pray for grace and mercy. Lord, just give, just give him a little bit more time. Just give her a little bit more time. Grace and mercy. Hold back the sin. Hold it back. Don't let him go. Don't, get, don't let him go fully into what her heart desires. Many scriptures tell us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 
Right, Ezekiel 18, for I, I have, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Ezekiel 33, say to them as I live, declares the Lord of God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, that, they may, that the wicked may turn from their way and live, turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? A New Testament passage, 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. Slow, but that all should reach repentance. So the atheist says, just give me, just give me some more evidence, and then I'll believe. The real issue is not the evidence, but what a person does with it. Right? God, God has given the evidence. There is plenty of, of things to show that God is real, that Jesus was real, that he rose from the dead. Like, there's plenty of evidence to show those things. But the real issue is not the evidence. The Israelites were given the same signs as Pharaoh was given. And they worshipped and believed. And, they, and the Egyptians and Pharaoh did not. And so because of that, one leads to freedom and the other leads to judgment and death. People are condemned by their own depravity because they do not believe in God's truth. God presents the truth, and we have to put our faith and trust it, or we reject it. There's the truth, and there's a counterfeit. Second thing, the miracle of the Nile to the blood. Look at verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning. And as he's going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say, it doesn't say that appears to turn into a serpent, but that actually turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far they have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff, stretch it over the water of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. And in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up his staff, he struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile was turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Verse 22, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So this is the first of what the Bible calls signs and wonders. The use of the word plague is where you usually say the, the ten plagues of Egypt. The word plague uh, is from the Latin, which means to blow, a, a blow or a wound that's given. 
And it comes from this idea of, of uh, Exodus 3 where it says, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do to it. So it's God is taking Egypt and he's striking it. He's giving it a blow. And so in order to understand these plagues, we have to understand that they were directed against gods and goddesses of Egypt. And these gods and goddesses, there was over 80, and they typically fell into three categories. The Nile, the land, and the air. And so if you take all of their 80 gods, they typically fell within these three categories. And so what we see is the ten plagues are, are divided up just that way. He attacks the Nile, and then he attacks the, the land, and then he attacks the air. And then it culminates with the death of the firstborn at the very end. So, but all of these are an attack on these gods and goddesses uh, of Egypt. And later in Numbers 33, Egypt is mentioned. It says, on their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So God is attacking this idea of, of their gods and goddesses. And God is showing that he is the ultimate God, that he is the true God. He's all-powerful, and he is the only one worthy of our worship. And he does it again and again and again and again. And the annual flooding of the Nile, as some of you may have learned from your 8th grade world history class or whatever it was, is that the Nile floods yearly, or annually, right? And it, it, when it floods, it will flood the land. And when it recedes, it leaves behind a thick, fertile layer of soil. Then they go out and they plow out their fields. And, and so agriculture is fairly easy for the Egyptians because there's, it's, you just have to plow up the land and plant the seed and... And it, and it just grows easily. And so God attacks first the Nile. He takes the Nile away. Now think about it. The Nile is, if you take the Nile away, what do you have? It's just desert. Right? So everything revolved around the Nile. The Nile was where they got their water. The Nile was transportation. The Nile, they'd go out and they'd fish and they'd eat lots and lots of fish, right? And it's, it's their main, all of their life circles around the Nile. And so then God takes the Nile away. If your world revolves around something other than the world, the one true God, there's a good chance that God might take that from you, right? Because, it's, because you, you, you don't even realize how much your life revolves around the one thing. How many of you have AT&T? Well, what, what day was it? Was it like, it was, but it, what, what day was it? Was it Thursday? Thursday. I get up, I go into the office. SOS at the top of my phone. Like, what does that mean? I'd never even seen that before. I had to, I, I had to get on my office computer and like, I, why can't I make a phone call? Like, what's going on? Imagine if all the phones and all the services and all the Wi-Fi, all, all of it were just gone overnight, which is exactly how I felt. I'm like, I can't call Kimberly. She can't call me. I can't communicate. Like, oh, no, like it was, it was temporary, but that could have been devastating. Right? Imagine the world without the internet. Boop, it's there. Boop, it's not there. It could be cataclysmic, right? Because we don't even realize how much we begin to put so much into technology, so much into one thing, and then boop, that thing's removed. For the people of Egypt, it was the Nile. It was their lifeblood. And so then the Egyptian magicians do the same by their secret arts. They, again, they... I don't, I'm just telling you, I don't believe, I believe it was blood. I believe when the Bible says it's blood, it was blood. And so somehow the magicians were able to duplicate this same thing 
by their dark arts, whatever, whatever it was. And, and so what I find interesting, though, is all of the Nile has been turned to blood. Remember, you have this picture of them kind of going around. And they've, they've done all the water, and especially the Nile has been turned to blood. The magicians go, and they find somewhere. There's somewhere there's a container of, of water, and they bring it out, and they sit it down, and they go, ha, ha, watch this. Boom. And now it's blood. We're like, what sense does that make? Because now you have even less water to drink, right? So who actually won in that, in that little showdown there? Wouldn't it be the better miracle to turn the blood into water, right? Instead of making your situation worse? Because not only do you not have water, now you have even less water. And they're like, ha ha, see what we've done. But somehow they duplicate it. It turns it. And the chapter closes with a picture of the Egyptian people going along the Nile, trying to dig down, trying to dig along beside it and find some water to drink. Their gods have failed them. God, the one true God has shown himself to be more powerful than all of their gods of the Nile. And they went, and the Pharaoh, you have this picture of Pharaoh just kind of looking at it, turning his back and walking back into his house, unaffected by the fact that his people are now having little water to drink. His heart is hardened. There once was a boy, and he really wanted to learn jade, like he, like where he grew in China. A little Chinese boy went to the local uh, the jeweler, and he's like, "I really want to learn how to do this trade. I, I really am interested in jade, and I really want to kind of learn how to do this." And so the guy, the 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 jeweler, he pulls the boy to the side, and he takes a stone and he puts it in the in the boy's hand, and he says, "Here, hold this," and he starts talking. He just talks about the weather, he talks about politics, and he's talking about all these different things, and he's talking about how he started his business, and he's just talking and talking hours and hours and hours. And then he's, he holds out his hand, he says, give me the stone back. He puts the stone in his hand, he goes, come back tomorrow. He's like, okay, whatever. So the boy comes back the next day, he says, here, put this in your hand, he holds it, and he starts talking again. He's talking about his relatives, he's talking about all kind of stuff. For hours and hours this goes on, and, he's just, and the little boy's like, what is going on? This went on for a week. After a week of this guy, this local jeweler, just talking and talking, and the boy's just standing there. He's like, goes in the next day. He goes, before he puts the stone in his hand, he goes, listen, I came to learn about jade and I want to learn how to cut it and I want to know about all this stuff and the man's like yeah 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 and he goes and he puts a, a stone in the boy's hand the boy grabs it he goes oh sir this is not jade and he hands it back to him he goes oh you're right how'd you know and so I just because I had held the jade the whole time and so it's like well okay Drew how do we know the counterfeit from the truth God has given us his word his word is truth. You can trust his word. You get in there, you study it, you hold it, you read it, you memorize it. It becomes part of who you are. When that counterfeit comes, you'll instantly know this isn't a jade. Right? You'll instantly go, this isn't right. Something, something's not right about this. There's a red flag there that's going up. There's, a, there's, something, there's something not right about this. I may, I may not can even put my finger on it exactly, but I know this isn't right because something doesn't line up with Scripture. That's the truth. That is what God has given us to be able to tell in this world between the counterfeits and the truth. Are you in his word? Are you studying it? Because if you're not, 
You're just left to tr- on your own devices to try to figure out this thing called life. And guys, listen, Satan has been at this counterfeit business for a long time. You've only been at it for a couple of decades. He's been at it for centuries. And he will come along and fool you every time. And the only device, the only strength, the only tool you have, you have the Holy Spirit within you, but you also have the Word of God. That is our tool that we have to fight against the counterfeit. Do you know it? Are you reading it? Are you in it? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. Lord, I thank you when I think about my life, of how I have just sought to run after and to pursue my own selfish desires, then, Lord, I do believe that you have held me back, that you have, in your grace and mercy, kept me from some things that could have been just absolutely devastating, completely wrecked everything. Thank you for that. Lord, we pray for grace and mercy for our relatives and for those in our family we love. We pray for grace and mercy on on the on the community and lord we just pray that we'll be a part of helping other people come to know the gospel and lord if there's someone here this morning who's realized that their whole life has been them running away from you and then but now you're beginning to work on their heart and they say you know what i've never given my heart and my life to the lord i've just completely sought after my own self my entire life and he's beginning to call you and pull you through his holy spirit you say, I, I, really, I really need to do something about this sin that I have in my life. That's why he went to the cross. And so you could say a prayer, something like this. Dear Jesus, I admit to you right now that I'm a sinner. I believe that you came to die for me on the cross. I would like to be forgiven of my sin. I put my faith and trust in what you did on the cross. And I pray this in Jesus' name. And then also, Lord, I pray that as your, as your followers, that we will be in your word, that we'll have a renewed pursuit of the truth, that we can memorize it and study it, because, Lord, that is the, what you have given us to fight against the counterfeits of this world. And, Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.